0: Welcome to the Rocky Mountain Christian Church podcast. Rocky is a community of believers who want to know Jesus and love like him. Let's take a listen to this week's message. Goodness, thank you so much for uh, having me out here. I feel like I actually was just a part of a really sacred family moment, just watching, watching the baptisms, so just thank you. Welcome uh, to everybody that's online or, or at the campuses, but honestly, I, I do want to just start by saying thank you for welcoming me. Uh, But but we're going to talk about a topic that basically by the end you may have wished you didn't welcome me. And I get it because I'm leaving here in like five hours. I fly out. So whatever, right? Um, So (laughs) Let's begin though with this statement. This statement will hopefully navigate through this frankly difficult topic. The statement is just two words, but hopefully it will give us our bearings. Here it is. Anchors matter. Anchors matter. Like an anchor for a boat matters, especially whenever you're caught in a storm. Like I'm I'm a little bit of a nerd, and anytime that I I get interested about something, I can't help it. I just start researching it and dig into it. And and I've always been fascinated with sailboats. I've never actually stepped foot on one, but I love them. I even have decorations of sailboats. My favorite song by an artist by the name of Ben Rector is his song about a sailboat. And and so I was just doing some research, and and sailboats are fascinating because they don't fight the elements. As a matter of fact, they utilize the wind, and they utilize the waves, and they allow the elements to help contribute to where their destination, where they're going. Sailboats are really fascinating because they're not having to rage against the sea. As a matter of fact, at times the sea begins to rage, and there's this technique called uh, tandem anchoring. Where if you're caught off shore and the weather starts to get intense and you think it's going to be pretty inclement and you need to, in some sense, anchor. You can tandem anchor. You can get two anchors that root deeper into the surface so that ultimately you're not thrown about by the storm. You know, in life, especially in 2020, we probably need some tandem anchoring. My goodness, I was reminded of it um, this past week. I was talking to one of my absolute dear friends. Uh, man, 20 years ago, I'm, I've said this multiple times in multiple settings, like he, he taught me what the love of Jesus was about. And this past week, I'm talking to him, and I, I, I don't know how any other way to categorize it, but, but he was experiencing a nervous breakdown. Like, he was talking to me, and his sentences weren't totally coherent, and he sounded paranoid, and, and, frankly, he was saying some stuff where I was like, okay, you have to promise to me that you're not going to hurt yourself without talking to me first. Like, it was pretty unnerving. And as we're talking, I said, I said Jake, you have to remember, dude, your anchors. I was like, thank you. I mean, good. I'm glad you reached out to me, because you know I will be here for you no matter what. But I was like, buddy, you need to remember The love of God that you taught me 20 years ago go back to the beginning it's like dude you you need to go and you need to talk to your wife and I said I've had to do this before and sometimes you need to do this and this is one of those times it's like you need to ask her what is true because right now I can't tell the difference between what is true and what is not true I need you to be my anchor and just tell me the truth Anchors can get us through some pretty stormy weather. Anchors can get us through some really tough times. And frankly, whenever we're going to talk about the rapture, we need some anchors. I mean, are you kidding me? I was like, wow, Sean, I see what you did there. You make sure you're out of town. We talk about the rapture. You bring the hippie into Colorado. Like, that's really cliche, to be honest with you. But I don't blame you. Because the rapture is wild, as a matter of fact, I was just telling Luke and, uh, and his wife Sydney in, in the back, I said, you know, the last time I spoke on the rapture in Colorado was seven, eight years ago. And I received one of the most colorful emails I've ever received. It ended with this phrase, you should have a millstone tied around your neck and dropped in the sea. It's like, whoa, okay, well that's, <laughs> at least you're vivid. Like, hey, it's a wild topic. And I actually love what Amanda said up here. It's okay to disagree. As a matter of fact, as Christians that are united in the blood of Jesus, you would think that we'd be able to teach the world how to disagree and still be united as one. I've grown up in the church in my whole life and I'll be honest with you, I wish whenever I said that statement, I wish it was more true than what I feel. But as Christians, we need to get better at this. We can disagree. I tell my students this in my class all the time. You can disagree with me and get an A. You just have to tell me why you think I'm an idiot. And number two, we have to do it with respect. It's okay. So here's the two anchors I wanna put into place here at the very beginning. Anchor number one is a word that I will say probably 40, 50 times throughout this sermon. Context, that's the first anchor, context. And here's why that anchor is so important. Because if you take the Bible out of context, You can make the Bible say anything you want. At all. (laughs) You can make the Bible say anything you want. You can make the Bible serve you. You can make the Bible justify your actions. You can make the Bible say anything you want. But if you read it in context, sometimes it's just a couple of verses before the verse that you're using. If you read it in context, the Bible not only unfolds in its meaning. But it does what the Bible does best. It unearths you. It transforms you. So the first anchor we're going to have in place is context. And we're going to be coming back to this all the time to help us get through this storm. Here's the second anchor that I want us to have in place at the very beginning. Identity. Identity. Why is this so important? Because if you don't know who you are you will not know how to act. One of my favorite quotes that I use at Ozark, I've even fashioned entire classes around this quote from Stuart Briscoe. Stuart Briscoe once said The more you tell someone who they are, the less you have to tell them what to do. Because action flows from identity. Your actions flow from the tree that you are, all, it's your fruit. So one of the questions I'm going to ask us eventually is this. Hey, Christians, we're claiming in our name, Christian, the first six letters of the name of Christ. Do we look like him in our actions? And if we don't, then who are we? That will be a question eventually. Not now. But that's another anchor. Context, identity. Let's dive into the storm, okay? Shall we? So I'm going to tell you my conclusion about the rapture. I'm going to give you five seconds to get mad and throw things, and then I'm going to explain why it's my conclusion. Okay? Okay. Here's my conclusion. I don't believe in a rapture because it's not biblical. Okay. Now let me tell you why. Two reasons. One of them is history. I'm a bit of a historian, guys. Matter of fact, like one third of my PhD is in Roman history. I'm asking the question in my dissertation of how the book of Revelations interacting with the Roman Empire. History is just something I gravitate towards. Why? Because I do believe if you ignore history, you will repeat its mistakes. If you don't know the stream within which has come before you, you won't know how to navigate the river moving forward. History is valuable. And so understanding the history of the rapture can kind of put a little bit of context into place. It won't be the only piece we will look at, but it's an important one. So here's the the history of the rapture. The first time in the history of the church that the concept of the church being pulled out or raptured out of the world before a time period of tribulation. First time that was ever mentioned was in 1830 by a woman named Margaret MacDonald from Scotland. Margaret MacDonald put herself into a a self-induced fever, and she went into a trance to receive some prophetic utterances, and she began writing them down. And I I know what she wrote, because I have a copy of her letter that she wrote in this trance in my office. And in 1830, Margaret MacDonald, in this trance, wrote down in this letter for the very first time the idea of the church being pulled out right before things get really bad. John Nelson Darby was also ministering in the area, caught wind of her teaching, then began to put the theological muscle around the rapture theology because he was a biblical scholar. And about three to four times over the next 15 to 20 years, he also, with this new rapture teaching, he began making trips over to America in this burgeoning new country. And every time he went, he would preach the gospel, and as he preached the gospel, he would preach the rapture. Some of this teaching was influential for a guy by the name of Cyrus Schofield, and if you know that name, it's pretty significant because in 1909, he published the first English study Bible called the Schofield Reference Bible. Like if any of you have reference Bibles, like an NIV study Bible or something where at the bottom you have like these notes that scholars help you, you guys know what I'm talking about? Raise your hand, holler if you hear me. Okay, I can't see you online raising your hand, but I'm assuming you did. I'm assuming you did. Okay. Uh, The Schofield Reference Bible was the first one of those. And it was wildly popular. And in the Schofield Reference Bible, he began to espouse the teaching of the rapture. And the problem was, is that the people reading it didn't distinguish between the inspired words at the top of the page and the uninspired words at the bottom. And it began to gain traction early 20th century, one of the most incredible evangelists of the early 20th century was a guy by the name of Dwight L. Moody. Like, he was so influential that when my family and I moved over to Scotland to start my PhD, we go to a church, and sure enough, their plaque outside the church read, this church was established in the early 1900s by Dwight L. Moody. I was like, the dude is amazing. He was an evangelist of evangelists, and everywhere he went, he preached the gospel of Jesus, and he also preached this rapture theology. Then the second half of the 20th century, we saw the emergence of another incredible evangelist by the name of Billy Graham. Ever heard of him? Yeah. Billy Graham in the 1970s wrote a book called Approaching Hoofbeats which espoused the rapture teaching. Speaking of the 1970s, there was another book that was published in the 1970s by a guy named Hal Lindsey called The Late Great Planet Earth. And that book not only taught the rapture teaching, it was so popular that in the decade of the 70s, the late great planet Earth outsold the Bible worldwide. That's a pretty impressive feat. In the 1980s, a guy by the name of Edgar Wisenant wrote a little pamphlet book called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Happen in 1988, followed up by the riveting sequel of 89 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Happen in 1989. And then 1990, a guy by the name of Tim LaHaye got together with his buddy named Jerry Jenkins. And they started writing this fictional series that people didn't realize all the time that it was fictional, but called Left Behind series which ends up having 13 actual books, although there are a bunch of prequels, but at a certain point I stopped counting. There were also two movies that came out of the series, one starring Kirk Cameron, one starring Nicolas Cage. In the Left Behind series in 1990, that first book sold over 63 million copies worldwide. Why is this history important? Because this is how an idea in 190 years, isn't just one that makes its way into the mainstream. It becomes the only idea that we think is acceptable in this stream. But here's my point. Just because it's a new kid on the block, 1830, doesn't mean it's wrong. That's not true. It just means it's new. And so we should at at the very least just pump the brakes whenever we realize how new the idea is. Because what we do have to admit is this. For 1800 years... The church was existing without teaching rapture theology, that Augustine didn't teach it, Irenaeus, Tertullian, Martin Luther, John Calvin, Justin Martyr. For 1,800 years, the church was preaching the gospel of Jesus, but the rapture was not part of it. That should at least give us pause. It doesn't mean it's false, but we should at least keep it in context. Fair? not asking if you agree with me. I'm asking, is it fair what I'm saying? Okay. Now let's move to the part that really matters to me. The second reason why I have a problem with the rapture is not history. It's, it's, it's the Bible. As a matter of fact, we're going to look at the three big rapture passages. Like if you talk to somebody about the rapture, these three passages will make their way into the conversation, I can promise you. The first one's Matthew chapter 24. So go ahead and pull out your Bibles or your devices. I know some of the scriptures will be on the screen, but I want to make sure you're following along with me to make sure I'm not, you know, just spouting heresy. Although some of you are like, well, you've already done that. Well, just give me like 15 more minutes and then we'll, we'll um, see what happens. Matthew chapter 24, you, you'll recognize this verse. This is one in the context of rapture, you're going, oh yeah, I've heard that one before. Um, verse 40, two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Ever heard that? Yeah, do you, you guys, you ever heard that one? Rapture. Followed up by verse 41, two women will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken, the other left. Rapture. Here's what I'm going to do. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to just appeal to context. We're going to just move back four verses. That's all we're going to do. We're going to go back to verse 36, and I want to read this in the stream of the conversation. So in verse 36, it's the topic about the second coming. And it's in red letters, so you know Jesus said it. It says, but about that day or hour, but about the second coming, about that day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Let me just stop right here and make an appeal that I make to every single church that I speak to Revelation in this country and around the world. Here's my appeal Hey, Christians, can we please stop predicting? Like, can we just knock it off already? This predicting of the second coming is not helping our witness. Can we please stop? Like, have you forgotten who we are as Christians? We weren't called to be cosmic fortune tellers in the sky. We were called to be the hands and feet of Jesus. And some of us, my goodness, we spend more time predicting the future than we do living out the gospel in the present. Stop predicting. Here's one thing that all predictions of of the second coming of Jesus have in common. They've all been wrong. As a matter of fact, in my notes, I have have a a non-Christian website that over the last 250 years just catalogs all of the predictions that Christians have made about Jesus' second coming. And the implicit message of the website is this. If they keep getting the second coming of Jesus wrong, we could probably assume fairly that they get the first coming of Jesus wrong too. It's not helping our witness. Truthfully, I believe when it comes to Revelation, we love to punt most of it into the future, into prediction, because we don't want to deal with our own brokenness and our own disobedience in the present. And the book of Revelation just has a different target than that. The book of Matthew has a different target of that. Jesus said he didn't know when the second coming was going to happen. Why do we think we can outdo him? I've actually had people say, well, he says we can't know the day or the hour, but we can know the month and the year. Are are you kidding me? Is that honestly what you think Jesus is trying to do? He's going, now Christians, I want to make sure, be general in your prediction, just not specific. In fact, that's his point? No. But he's going to teach us about the second coming. Verse 37. As it was in the days of Noah, he's gonna teach us about the second coming by using an illustration from the Old Testament. Have you guys ever heard of the story of Noah? Okay, so Noah is one of in his family are some of the last righteous people on the earth. And the Lord is so overwhelmed with the disobedience and the chaos of his world that he calls Noah to build an ark. If, if, if this story is confusing to you, watch Evan Almighty, it'll explain everything but he has him build an ark and he starts building everybody thinks he's weird and then he builds it and everybody around him all of the evil are still drinking and marrying and having a good time and then he gets into the ark and they're like good luck buddy get into the ark and all these animals are in there with him and it's really weird and then the rain comes and the rain comes and all of the rain ends up creating the world anew a new existence for God's creation and Jesus says when we're coming with it when we're talking about the second coming, it reminds me of the story of Noah, verse 37. For as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. He goes, so if you understand Noah's story, you should understand the coming of the Son of Man's story. You should know both of them. Because history can help you understand how to navigate the stream. For in the days before the flood, people... now. The plural pronoun is significant. I know, that sounds like one of the nerdiest things that I could say. But, but the plural pronoun is significant because all of the plural pronouns will refer to evil in this context. And all of the singular will refer to good. Noah, we know it's Noah and his family in the ark, but Jesus doesn't say that. He just says Noah, singular. And then people, plural. That'll be important here in a minute, I promise. Keep going. For in the days before the flood people plural were eating and drinking marrying and giving in marriage up to the day Noah singular entered the ark. And they plural knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them plural all away. In the story of Noah, who did the flood sweep away, good or evil? Say it louder friends. Evil. Now stop for a minute, Jesus is saying, if you know the story of the of Noah, you will know about the coming of the Son of Man. So the storm comes, the the flood comes and sweeps the evil away. Then Jesus says this, that is how it'll be at the coming of the Son of Man. What do you mean? Well, who's going to be taken away when the Son of Man comes? Well, if it's like the days of Noah, the evil are going to be swept away, right? In the very next verse after this, after this parallel, very next verse, Jesus says, two men will be in the field, One will be taken and the other left. In context, who's taken? Evil. See, part of my problem with the rapture is I'm like, you got the wrong people leaving. The good aren't leaving? Why? We're still going to use this place. You're going to talk about it in two weeks when you talk about heaven. Will this place be redeemed? Absolutely. Will it be restored? Absolutely. Are we still going to use God's creation? Without question. It's not like in Genesis chapter 3, Satan accomplishes something that God's like, well, shoot, I can't undo that. I guess I'll just blow it all up. No, Romans chapter 8 seems to indicate that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross didn't just affect us. It affected all of creation that was subject to bondage of decay that it has been groaning under longing for us to be revealed. Matter of fact, it's really interesting because, you know, my plea of don't predict. Look at verse 42. Verse 42. Therefore, I always teach my students this. Anytime you see a therefore, you ask, what is it therefore? Therefore is a, it's a summary. It's saying, in light of all this, here's the point. That's what therefore does. Therefore, keep watch. Because you don't know when the day of the Lord will come. He's like, you don't know. You can't predict it. So just stink and be ready. As a matter of fact, Matthew 24 and 25 ends with four parables. And each of the parables have the same message. No one knows, stink and be ready. No one knows when he's coming. So make sure when he does come, he finds you doing the work of the hands and feet of Jesus. Because that's who you are. And that's who he expects you to be. Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This is actually the text. Now the word rapture never appears in the entire English Bible once. It's not in there. Look it up in any English accord, concordance. You will not find the word rapture. Where does the word rapture come from? It comes from a Latin word that means meat or to caught up to meat, A Latin word that was translating a Greek word that eventually got pulled into the English as the word rapture. And it comes from this text, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. And I want to begin, though, with the therefore in verse 18, and then we will move backwards. Verse 18 says this, therefore... Encourage one another with these words. Can I let you in on a little context secret when it comes to Bible study? The context secret is this. These letters, by God's grace, we get to overhear a conversation between a minister and his people. They weren't written to me. Paul was writing this to a church in Thessalonica in the first century that was struggling And these communities found these passages. Every New Testament letter is this. Even the book of Revelation. We're overhearing a conversation of John, the pastor of these seven churches in Asia Minor. Every New Testament book is a letter from a minister to their people. And we get to overhear a conversation. Which The reason why that's important is it must first mean something to them before we can take control of it and rip it in 21st century and make it mean something totally different. I mean, at the very least, we just need to say, what did the Thessalonican church hear? Because what they're about to hear in verses 13 through 17, Paul seems to think that it will encourage them. That it will encourage the church in Thessalonica that he is writing this letter to. So let, let let me set the scene for you. The church in Thessalonica struggles with hope. As a matter of fact, you you ever heard, you know, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love, 1 Corinthians 13? That's a triad that you see multiple times. At the beginning of Thessalonica, the Thessalonian letters, it says faith, love, and hope, not not faith, hope, and love. Why? Because whatever comes at the end of the list, for the Corinthian church, it's love, for Thessalonica church, it's hope, whatever comes at the end is what that church is struggling with the most. Faith, love, and hope. He's talking to Thessalonican church because they're struggling with hope. Specifically around this issue, their friends and family have died. Some of them, because of the persecution inside of their city, their friends and family have laid their lives down for the gospel. The problem is the second coming hasn't happened yet. And these Christians in Thessalonica are worried that because their family has died, that they won't get to experience all of the benefits of the second coming of Jesus. And they talk to Paul, and they're like, you told us the second coming was going to happen soon, but now all of a sudden my family members have died, so are they going to miss out? Do they not get to experience all the blessings of the second coming of Jesus? And Paul goes, whoa, 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 whoa. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's let's put some anchors in place here. Because I know, I know it's difficult what you're going through inside of Thessalonica right now. And the storm is raging, but we can weather this with the truth. Verse 13. Brothers and sisters, we we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death. I love love that metaphor for Christians that die, sleep. Because whenever you go to sleep, there's always the assumption that you will what? Wake up. It's, It's not the end of the story. And when Christians die, sleep's the perfect metaphor. That's not the end of the story. The story continues. Because we don't want you to be uninformed about those who have fallen asleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Uh, real quick, Paul's not telling Christians not to grieve. Christians, no, we just don't grieve in the same way, but we still grieve. Like those of you that have lost, I've, I've seen this happen in the church. Where you almost get this guilt trip from people like, hey, don't forget they're in heaven. Yeah, I know, but it still hurts that they're not here with me on earth. And that's a healthy thing to submit to. The full spectrum of the emotion is actually cleansing. If you don't believe me that the full spectrum of the emotion matters, just read the Psalms. There's some pretty wild emotions in there. And it's in the Bible to tell us this. Emotions weren't a part of the fall. God created it and called it good. Allow them to do their job of cleansing you. Christians, it's okay to grieve. Just make sure you're grieving in a way that remembers this next line. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. 1 John 2, 6 says, For anyone that follows Jesus must walk as Jesus did. And that's not just a command, that's good news. Because if Jesus died and rose again, so too will you. Your death is not the end of the story. And neither is it the end of the story for your loved ones. And he says, so because Jesus died and rose again, and we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. He says, your loved ones are with him. Paul says elsewhere, you know, to depart from the body is to be in the presence of the Lord. <laughs> your loved ones are not struggling. They're actually in a better place than you are. They're with Jesus right now. Verse 15, according to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive at that second coming, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not even, we will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. They're in a better position than we are. They're not missing the second coming. They're experiencing fruits of it that we can only dream of here on earth. Verse 16, for the Lord himself, notice the tenderness of this pastor to his people, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God. So much for a silent rapture. And the dead in Christ will rise first. They even get to experience the resurrection before you do. They're not in a bad position. Thessalonica church, relax. After that, We who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And we immediately go, rapture. Oh, hold on. Keep it in context. Because do you know what a person in Thessalonica would have heard with that verse? They wouldn't have thought, wow, 2,000 years from now I will be excited when that happens to people that has nothing to do with me. No, the Thessalonican church thought this. You I mean, we don't even have to wait for them to come back to the earth before we get to hug our loved ones again. He will allow us to, to be caught up in the air and to meet their procession that's coming back down to the earth. That word meet there is a real important word. In the Greek, it's, it's apontasis and it's this royalty term. It's, and it has this connotation, if the emperor is coming to your city... You don't wait for the emperor to come up to your gates before you're like, oh, hey, king, how's it going? No, you run out, even to other cities, and you greet the procession that's coming back to your place. You meet them, and you join the parade that's still moving towards the destination. That's the word there. See, heaven is coming down to earth And the beauty of this passage is he says, your loved ones that have died will be with Jesus, and you don't even have to wait for them to get back to this place. You get to actually embrace them and join the parade as it comes back down to this earth because we're still going to use this place. And that's why it ends in verse 18 saying this. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. It would be strange to be encouraged if Paul looks at you and says, oh, you're struggling with your loved ones dying? Well, in 2,000 years from now, the church is going to be, able to be able to be pulled out before things get bad. I know you're struggling, but they won't have to. How is that encouraging to the Thessalonican church? No, he looks at him and he says this. The Lord's not forgotten about you or your loved ones. And if this is true, then this allows Christians to, like Christ, lay down everything they are on behalf of someone else. It frees them. The last passage, the big rapture passage, comes in Revelation chapter 4 verse 1. A scholar by the name of Dahan once said this. He said, Revelation chapter 4 verse 1 is the absolute clearest passage in the entire Bible on the rapture. And I respond back and say, that's my problem. Because if this is the clearest verse, what are we trying to force into the text? So here here is the Revelation rapture passage. After this, I looked. I told you I'm going to be using context. So how do we define the word I? Well, the word I there refers to John, the apostle on the island of Patmos. Where do I get that? Revelation chapter 1, verse 9, which literally says, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering of the kingdom and the patient endurance that are ours in Jesus Christ was on the island of Patmos because of the testimony of the word. So John is the I. After this, I, John, looked, and there before me, John, was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I, John, had first heard speaking to me, John, like a trumpet, said, come up here. And I, Jesus, will show you what must take place after this. And they say, rapture. And I say, whoa, 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 what? Like, if you take the Bible out of context, you can make the Bible say whatever you want. But this isn't taking out a group of people from the earth. This is John being allowed to receive a divine perspective because everything on earth seems like it is burning and going to hell. And he's writing this vision that the Lord has given him to the people saying, he is not abandoning us. Rome will not be victorious. Ultimately, Christ is king, and it's easy for Christians in the middle of chaos, in the middle of a storm, to forget who's sitting on the throne. Right, American Christians? If 2020 has concerned me with anything, it's not our belief in a rapture. I'm concerned for the church in America because I don't know if we remember who we are. I mean, if I'm being totally honest, the way we are acting in 2020 doesn't seem like that we as Christians are very confident that Christ is on the throne. And it's times like these, where the church, because of who we are, shines the brightest. But if you don't think that we're struggling right now, then all I need to do is to grab any one of our news feeds from any one of our social media accounts and put it on the screen, and let's just see how Christians are talking. Don't get me wrong. I know this is tough. Pandemics are brutal. The election has not been easy. But have you forgotten that Christ is on the throne and that we are the extension of the body and the blood of Jesus to this world that needs an anchor? What are we doing? You know, I've had some people say a lot like, Shane, you know, your your hair, you being a hippie, it matches the fact that you talk about love all the stinking time. They say, but you know what, Shane? Jesus also got in the face of his enemies. He spoke out against the culture. He got rowdy. Matter of fact, Matthew chapter 23, he does get rowdy with the Pharisees. The chapter right before that rapture passage. This is my response back. You're right. So go ahead, speak against the culture that you're willing to be crucified for. Because Jesus didn't just, just go at these people and just yell stuff at them. He says, and even though you're wrong, I will climb on the cross before so that you can be set free. So sure, speak against the culture you're willing to be crucified for the way Jesus was willing to be crucified, the culture he was speaking against. And that type of a love... be an anchor for a world that is desperate and dying and looking for some direction the church is the city on a hill the church is the temple of god we are the answer to the lord's prayer for the kingdom to come and the will be done on earth as it is in heaven have we forgotten who we are because our actions are not following the identity of the one that was crucified for us we need to reclaim our identity so that then we know what to do stop wasting energy stop wasting our voice on predictions and politics because I don't care if you're a donkey or an elephant I care if you follow the slain lamb and there's something about that that is not just powerful it is world-altering it is life-changing and we are living in a world that doesn't know that transformation is possible, but we do because we celebrate it every time somebody comes out of that baptism and every time we ingest the body and blood of Jesus. When you take the Bible out of context, it doesn't just change the word. We start to recraft Jesus in our own image instead of the opposite. Stop looking to the skies, the angels told apostles and instead get to work let me pray over us Lord Jesus Father forgive us because at times Lord we just don't know what we're doing Lord heal us so that, Father, that we can be transformed and to heal the brokenness in the people around us. Father, hope in our, open our hearts and our eyes, not so that we agree on everything, but so ultimately, Father, our mission is the same and we are united to not just overthrow a pandemic or not just to have a political party, but, Father, ultimately for your kingdom to come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven through us, your hands and feet. God, I pray a blessing over this church that they can be an anchor for this community, that they can be an anchor for their families over Thanksgiving so that, Father, Rocky Mountain Christian Church can be that city on a hill that the prodigals flock to, knowing that we don't just have to wait for one day to experience you, because of your sacrifice and because of the Spirit, Father, we can experience you today. Oh God, hear my prayer. Oh Lord, hear my cry. And it's in your name, Jesus, we pray these things. Amen.